So this is our second sermon on the life of Elijah as part of our summer series. Last week we read um, from the end of chapter 16 to the first few verses of chapter 17 of 1 Kings. And in those verses, Elijah went to King Ahab. He told him there would be a drought um, and then Elijah had to flee. He ran off to a brook where the Lord provided food and drink for him. And then we'll pick up tonight 1 Kings 17, beginning at verse 7. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me, and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse, and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, And laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, Your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. This is the word of the Lord for us today. So in tonight's text, as with a lot of the Elijah story, the surface level of events is about Elijah and what happens to him. But the deeper level of the text is about the Lord God and what happens with the Lord's contest with other gods. And in this story, there are two other ancient gods that the Lord takes on. And the Lord proves to be more powerful than either of them. So tonight, we'll look at how the Lord challenges the god Baal and the god Mote, and how he defeats both of them. And we'll also reflect on what that struggle and the Lord's victory means for us today. We'll start out by looking at how the Lord challenges Baal. This happens mostly in verses 7 to 16 of chapter 17. And the message of this section is actually pretty similar to the section we read last week. But there's a couple significant 
new developments. And one of the developments has to do with what I'm going to call home court advantage. The NBA Finals have been on this last week, and this year the Golden State Warriors are playing the Cleveland Cavaliers. And this is basketball if you just totally are not into the sports world. And the Warriors are an epically good team. They beat the record for number of wins set by this team called the Bulls maybe 20 years ago or so. And the Cavaliers are pretty good too. They have this guy called LeBron James who some might say, especially if they live in Cleveland, that he's the best basketball player since a guy named Michael. We would disagree because we're in Chicago, but, you know, you got to give Cleveland something. Through the first three games of this series, home court advantage was huge. The first two games were at the Warriors' place, and the Cavaliers didn't even look like a pro team. They got blown off the court. They lost by 15 points, and the next game they looked even worse, and they lost by 23 points. And if you lose by 23 in the NBA Finals, that is really embarrassing. But then the final shifted to Cleveland, to the Cavaliers' home court, and then the Warriors lost by 30 points. Home court advantage was the deal for the first part of that series. And that's true on pretty much every level of competition. It is always easier to win in your own territory. So last week, we started out with Elijah in the Lord's home territory of Israel. King Ahab and his wife Jezebel had brought in a new god, Baal, to compete there. And Elijah goes to Ahab and he says, the Lord is going to win this battle. Baal was a god of the weather and Elijah went and said, there is going to be no rain until the Lord says so. This was basically the Lord saying, this is my place and Baal is not going to win on my home court. And after that, Elijah had to flee because kings don't take well to being told they're being idiots. And for a while, the Lord kept Elijah safe kind of on the edge of the promised land. But then in this text, the brook goes dry and the Lord tells Elijah to go to this little village called Zarephath near Sidon. Now, Sidon was about 75 miles away probably from where Elijah was, kind of a tough road to get there. And what's more significant is that this was Baal's territory. Sidon where Zarephath was near, was the center of Baal worship. This was Baal's homeland. This is where pretty much everybody would have served Baal as their Lord and their God. So in this story, the Lord is sending Elijah right into his enemy's home court. The Lord is going to go play an away game, and we're going to see how it turns out. Now, before we get into that more, let's talk a little bit about Baal. In the ancient world, most nations served a number of gods. They had a god for this and a god for that, you know, a god for the rain, a god for trade, a god for good family life, a god for a good market day, a god for everything. And Baal was the national god of Sidon, kind of the central god there, because as god of the weather, he could provide for good crops on the land and also for good sailing on the Mediterranean Sea, and Sidon was a coastal city, so that was a big deal. He was supposed, Baal was supposed to be able to control the rains. But this is an area of the world that has an annual dry season where there's no rain for quite a while. So how do you square that with a God who's supposed to be in charge of the rain? And what the people of Sidon did is they developed this story that Baal was a God who died and rose again every year. Every year when the dry season began, Moat, the god of death, would go and have a fight with Baal, and Moat would win. 
He'd kill Baal. He'd take him off to the land of the dead for a few months. And eventually some other god would come and rescue Baal and bring him back from the dead. And then the rain would start again. But in the dry season, Baal was pretty much inaccessible. In the dry season, Baal was trapped in the realm of the dead, unable to act, unable to help his followers until someone rescued him first. So in this story, Elijah goes to the land of Sidon, and there's been a terrible drought there too. Food is running out, hope is running out, the people have been calling and calling and calling and calling on Baal to come back, but he hasn't done anything. He's still stuck somewhere else. And when Elijah goes to that particular village, he finds a widow who's about to die. The food has run out, or almost run out. And Elijah asks for a drink, and then he apparently casually asks for a little bit of food too. And the widow somehow recognizes that Elijah is a follower of the Lord, and she says, well, there's, there's basically nothing left. And Elijah tells her, make a little bit for me, and then make some for your family. And miraculously, the food doesn't run out. Day after day, week after week, it seems like even the period of time here is year after year, Elijah, the widow, her son, they have enough to eat. Through Elijah's presence, the Lord provides for the widow and her son. And through the widow, the Lord provides for Elijah. And again, on the surface level, we see what's going on with Elijah here. But on the deeper level, this is the Lord showing that he has power even in Baal's territory. When Baal was unable to help his own people, the Lord sent his prophet there to help them. The Lord doesn't just win in his own nation, in the nation of Israel, but the Lord wins everywhere because he is the living God. Now, in the text we read for last week, the Lord's power kept Elijah safe. But now in this story, we see the Lord working through Elijah to bring deliverance to other people. First, the Lord delivers Elijah, and then the Lord works through him and through the widow so that they have enough food. The Lord works through the actions of people who obey him. The Lord works through human actions. It is the Lord who works, but God calls his people to step out in faith too. In this story, both Elijah and the widow are provided for, but their obedience plays a part in them being provided for. The provision of flour and oil day after day after day after week after month after year is miraculous. But the widow had to keep exercising faith every day. Every time she poured out the oil, every time she used the flour, she was acting in faith that there would be more the next day, that the Lord would continue to provide. Now here at Faith, here in Elmhurst, we don't usually see such obvious examples of famine and need. It's not too often that we encounter someone who really has nothing left, who's down to their last meal, who could say, yeah, I'm going to get some food together and cook it and have my last meal, and then all we've got left to do is die. But even if we don't see such drastic need, we have a call. We have a call to share with others what the Lord has gifted us with. 
And that begins by us realizing that the Lord provides everything. All the good things in our lives, the houses we come from, the cars we drive to get here, the clothes we wear, the food we ate today or that we'll eat tonight, the Lord stands behind all of that, and all of that is a gift from Him. But then along with that, all that the Lord gives us is a call for us to turn around and to serve others. And so as we read this text tonight, the Lord provides for us. How is the Lord calling us to provide for others? What has the Lord provided you with? What has the Lord called you to do? Maybe for some of the young people among us, your allowance, your money from a summer job, maybe some of that could be given away. I know there's never enough money, but maybe the Lord is calling you to give just a little bit away to help someone who doesn't have enough food to eat or a safe place to sleep. And maybe for those of us who are older, God has gifted us in other ways. Maybe it's money that we can give a little extra to the Benevolence Fund to help those in need or to the Timothy Fund to help those who are sending their kids to Christian school or something else, some other cause that the Lord lays on your heart. Or maybe, and the examples could go on and on, I'm just going to give one more. Maybe the Lord is calling us to really practice hospitality with other people. Maybe we're being called to invite our family or our friends or our neighbors over to our house a little more often and just be present in people's lives, even if that means the house isn't always spotlessly clean whenever someone else comes over. The Lord can provide through us for other people, even if the floor hasn't been vacuumed, even if the kitchen counters aren't totally clean. The Lord can work with that. I know it's hard for us to believe, but the Lord can work even with that. So let's go back to Elijah's time again. In the first part of the story, the Lord crosses the border from Israel up into the region of Sidon. He shows he has power even in Baal's territory, But now we come to a much more difficult border. Now we come to the part of the story where the Lord challenges the God moat. Again, the Lord provides for Elijah, for the widow, for her son, for what seems to be a period of years. But then we get to verse 17, and the widow's son dies. He gets sicker and sicker, and then he dies. And then the widow bursts out against Elijah. What have you done to me? Did you come here just to kill my son? Somehow, rightfully or not, the widow connects Elijah's presence with her son's death, and she feels like there's no hope. The widow's son has passed over the border of life into death. He's passed that border beyond which there is no hope. He's entered what the people of Sidon would have considered to be the territory of the God of death, whose name was Moat. Moat was the god of death. And even Baal, the best thing those people inside and had going for them, even Baal couldn't do anything about Moat. What Moat took, he did not give back. When people went to the land of death, they did not come back. There was no hope. But as this text is set up, it's inviting us to ask whether the Lord, the God of Israel, whether he can help, whether he can challenge Moat and win. Baal is helpless at this point, but what can the Lord do? 
The Lord has gone to Baal's home court and he's won there. Now what's going to happen when the Lord faces up against Moat? What can he do in the territory of death? And the widow looks at the situation and she thinks there's nothing more to be done. The widow is out of hope, but Elijah is not. He takes the boy and he cries out to the Lord, why has this happened? Why have you allowed this? Why have you even maybe caused this? And then three times, Elijah asked the Lord to bring that boy back from the land of the dead to the land of the living. On the surface level, this seems like foolishness. People don't come back from the dead. It was over. Moat had won. Death was the victor. But the Lord had something different to say about that story. After Elijah prays three times, the Lord brings, brings that boy back from the dead. And Elijah goes and he gives the boy back to his mother. And the Lord, the God of Israel, defeats even death. There is no other God like this. In this story, the Lord conquers Baal. In this story, the Lord conquers Moat. The Lord brings the dead back to life. As far as I can remember, this is the first time in the Bible that we clearly see a resurrection story. But of course, we know it's not the last. There's other stories in the Bible and the Old Testament. And then when we come to Jesus, we see Jesus seemingly all the time healing people and bringing them back to life. In our Friday men's morning Bible study this week, we were looking at, I think it's Mark 8, and there's a story where Jesus actually goes to exactly this same region, and a woman from there comes to him and begs him to heal her sick child, and Jesus heals them just like that. The Gospels want us to see that Jesus is the true Elijah. Elijah points forward to Jesus. Jesus, who raised a number of people back from the dead, who brought people from the realm of the dead back to this world. And then, of course, we know that Jesus went a great big step farther than that. Jesus himself crossed over into the realm of the dead. The living Lord allowed himself to be carried away into the darkness. But unlike Baal, unlike anyone else, the Lord returned from death in his own power and he broke the power of death forever. Baal needed some other God's help to get back from the dead for a few months and then he was carried off again. But the Lord Jesus defeated death once and for all. His resurrection broke the realm of the dead and destroyed its power. So in this text, we see a story that points us forward to Jesus, to the true Lord who defeats every other God, even death. And so if we believe in Jesus, we will be raised again just as the widow's son was in this story. And we won't be raised again to just a few more years of life before we again pass into the realm of the dead but we will be raised to be with the Lord forever. And that's the greatest hope and in some ways the greatest challenge that this text has for us. The Lord gives us new life. The Lord gives us 
new life. That's a great hope because we can look forward to the reality of eternal life. But it's also a great challenge because we still die. And our children still die. And we still suffer. As you can imagine, this was a tough text for me to work with this week because the stories in our life don't always end on this kind of happy note. It can be hard to work with texts like this sometimes because we have hard, hard questions in our lives. And it can be a challenge to work with the truth of the text and the reality of our lives that we experience. Our daughter Eliza would have been six months old this week. And instead of celebrating that, we get to look back and remember that she passed away three months ago. And we prayed way, way more than three times. And I know a lot of you prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. And yet our Eliza never got better. She went to the realm of the dead and she hasn't come back. And you know, we could look around this sanctuary and we could tell any number of stories of children, grandchildren, people we know who died. And we never got our Elijah moment. And others of us, we've buried spouses far too young, far too young. Or we've struggled with cancer or some other serious illness that has us asking ourselves, how long do I really have left? Why is this happening to me? So we look around the room and we see all kinds of stories of pain and suffering. And I don't think even all of us know all of the stories of pain and suffering that are here. And so when we read passages like this, one of the questions that comes to mind is why doesn't God make it all better for all of us? Why did that widow get a resurrection story? Why did Elijah go there and not come into our lives? I don't bring up these examples or these questions lightly. These are hard things. There's no, no easy answers or simple explanations. But if we're going to really hold on to the faith, then we need to ask these questions. The Lord didn't give us these stories in the Bible just so we could tell nice fantasy stories to each other about how maybe somehow life could be or should be better. And I think we do a disservice to the Lord, to the story from the Bible, and to ourselves if we just leave this as, yeah, a nice story that somehow was great for the people back then, but doesn't matter for us. We don't always know all the answers. We often don't understand all of God's plan. There are many times that we don't know what God is up to. We don't know why he lets children die. We don't know why he allows evil or pain or suffering. The Bible doesn't give us all the answers to those questions. But the answer that the scripture does give us, the basic truth of this story is that the Lord is God. The Lord is truly God and there is none other like him. We are truly in the hands of the only living God and those hands do not let us go. No matter what other gods claim to offer, no matter what troubles come, no matter what evil and suffering and darkness and even death come into our lives, 
The Lord has us in his hands, and he does not let go. This story does not tell us that the Lord will work a miracle in every single situation. It doesn't tell us that if we have enough faith or we pray enough or somehow do the right things, that God is obligated to do what we want him to do. The Bible doesn't tell us that. But what the Bible does tell us, and what this story in particular does tell us, is that the Lord can overcome every force of evil and death. The Lord is greater than Baal. The Lord is greater than Moat, the god of death. No matter what mask evil puts on, the Lord is able to defeat it. Over and over again in the Bible, we see the Lord defeating evil. We see it here in 1 Kings. We see it in too many stories to list. And we see it most clearly in Jesus and his resurrection. Now in God's plan, in his providence, in his timing, we don't always see this in our day-to-day lives. And that's why, that's why we need this book. That's why we need the scriptures. That's why we need to gather to hear the word of God. We need the stories of the Bible to give us a foundation, to show us that even when life is really hard and dark, that the truth is that the Lord is God. The scriptures don't tell us that nothing bad will ever happen to God's people. They don't explain suffering or explain suffering away somehow but they do show us that the Lord overcomes evil and death. And so we get the encouragement we need to continue in the faith. Not all the answers, not everything we could want or ask for, but again, the Bible gives us this. The Lord provides for us. The Lord overcomes evil and suffering The Lord even overcomes death. Not all at once, not on our timeline, but step by step. Sometimes painful step by painful step. Hard day by hard day, the Lord wins. And so we have real assurance and hope. This isn't a trite cliche. It's not just something nice to say. We have real hope. Baal, moat, any other power of evil that you claim to name, none of them can really hold on to us. The Lord, the Lord is truly God, and he truly takes care of us. Who else is like the Lord? No one, no other God. But the Lord is our living God. He gives us new life. And in that we find comfort and hope that carries us through.